0: Hello everyone and thank you for joining this week's episode of Leadership Global. And today I have the pleasure and the honor of introducing you to Tara J Frank. I can't wait to dive into this really important topic with Tara and to learn along with all of you about this incredibly important topic which is cultural competence and learning from Tara's perspective. About the keys to cultural competence. You know, I would say that relationships really are a powerful part of who we are. They can make us feel as though we belong, like we have something worthwhile to contribute to the world. They can strengthen us. They can give us a reason to affect change and most importantly, to be changed. But it's actually really difficult to connect with people When we don't understand their background, we don't understand their worldview and their perspective. So how do we learn to interact respectfully and knowledgeably with the people in our lives who exist outside of our inner circle, those people whose culture and whose worldview is so far removed from our own? How do we use our differences to actually strengthen our bond as humans? that's where cultural competency comes into play. Cultural competency is the ability to understand, to communicate with, and effectively interact with people across cultures. Cultural competency, I think, encompasses four things. One, being aware of your own worldview. Two, developing positive attitudes towards cultural differences. Three, gaining knowledge of different cultural practices, different cultural worldviews, and fourth and perhaps most importantly, developing skills for communication and interaction across cultures. So cultural proficiency requires more than becoming culturally aware or practicing tolerance. It's really the ability to identify and challenge your own cultural assumptions, values, and beliefs in order to make a commitment to communicating at that sort of cultural intersection, if you will. So developing cultural competence is actually more of a process than it is an end point. It's never really a destination because there's something always additional to learn. And just like any skill, the process of development and improvement continues. And so to help all of us better understand this really interesting topic of cultural competency and to help unlock our ability to move forward in our development with cultural competency, please help me welcome Tara J. Frank. She is an expert in unlocking the potential of diverse teams.
1: I can't think of a more important topic that to embark on today, Linda and Tara, we are thrilled to have you talk with us today about the keys to cultural competency. So for all of our listeners, please help me welcome Tara. She is a speaker, consultant at More Than a Movement, and CEO of TJF Career Modeling. As a sought-after consultant, speaker, author, and leadership experience designer, Tara J. helps leaders and organizations define a vision and develop strategies to advance their cultural and leadership goals. As the visionary and founder of hashtag more Than, a healing movement towards deeper understanding between disconnected people. Tara's aim is to fight stereotypes and redefine our human experience by revealing the truth of who we are, not whom others perceive us to be. Gosh, that's just, that's so important and so relevant today. Hashtag More Than's work is comprised of three pillars, media, product, and education. As the CEO of TJF Career Modeling, Tara works with organizations to unleash human potential through public speaking and consulting, specializing in engaging, equipping, and inspiring and elevating diverse talent segments, including women and people of color. Before founding TJF Career Modeling, Tara spent 21 years at Hallmark Cards Inc. where she was the company's first black female vice president And at the time of her promotion to executive management, also the youngest person to rise into senior leadership in Hallmark's history. Such a distinguished career. Welcome, Tara.
2: Thank you so much. I am glad to be here and I appreciate the invitation.
1: So let's just dive in because we're so eager to get started. Um, tell us a little bit about your personal journey and what has led you to have such a passion around unlocking the potential of diverse teams and embedding growth mindsets?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. What has led me to this point? Um And I always ask myself, where do I start, right? You have a, when you have a long career, when you've been Working for 25 years plus, I'll leave it at that. Uh, (laughs) And people ask you what brought you here. It's clearly a a series of moments, right? A series of experiences and interactions that, that I believe over time kind of reveal to each of us what we're uniquely good at. Um, and then help us better understand what gives us energy, right? There are so many different things that we might be able to do. Um, but just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should or that, or that it's what you're purposed to do. So my journey has really been one of kind of identifying my purpose combined with my unique skills and abilities. Um, and then lastly, and most important, Kind of marrying that up to what the world needs, right? What the marketplace needs, um, right now. And this is an interesting time for me because so many of my past career milestones have really led to this point. So as you mentioned, I spent a long time at Hallmark cards. I started as a greeting card writer. Um, I bring that up because it's interesting. People are always fascinated by it, but also to say that while that role was about storytelling and writing, It was more so about relationships. It was more so about understanding what inspires people, um, what they want out of their relationships, what they want to say to people they love and care about, and really also what they want to hear from people they love and care about. And so this, this notion of building bridges between people, which is how I talk about my work today, is something that I've been at for a very long time, if you think about it that way. So I spent a while in you know, creative product development, Um, I got to a point in my career where I recognized that being able to meaningfully reflect the points of view and the emotional needs of an evolving, you know, demography uh, required that we had a better sense of different cultures, perspectives, right, ethnicities, um, nationalities, all, all of the different aspects of identity it required that we better understood those things. And not only from a worldview standpoint, but from a value standpoint, motivations, and then all the way through to languages and celebrations, holidays, etc. cetera. So if we did not fully understand all of that, then there was no way we were going to be able to be relevant to those people um, and relevant in, in their lives ongoing. What became increasingly clear to me um, as a leader at that time was that doing that, reflecting those needs sustainably and meaningfully was near impossible unless we had that talent who also intuitively understood those needs and perspectives on the inside of the company. So my passion for unleashing talent, right? For um, unleashing diverse talent, for ensuring that we had representation of multiple points of view um, and that those people had voices and could contribute fully. My passion for all of that honestly came out of a marketplace need. Um Because what I was thinking at the time was, you know, you could continue to focus group yourself to death. Or you could diversify your workforce. And if you do the latter, that is the sustainable path to relevance, right? Ongoing. Um, you just know on the inside, right, from a heart, mind and and behavioral standpoint, what winning looks like, what great looks like and, and what the, how the needs are actually going to evolve. So that's how I kind of found myself here. You know, there were a couple of roles clearly toward the last few years of my Hallmark career that really gave me additional skills and knowledge. But the story arc is really about you know, relationships through to, to marketplace needs and consumer understanding and ended up around this topic of a workforce that truly represents the people that we serve.
0: I love that, Tara. That's so, um, that shows such self-awareness. And I love your remark about having a sustainable path to relevance. And I think that that's such incredible insight for leaders all across America is that, you know, to recognize that people with diverse racial or ethnic backgrounds, refugees, migrants, immigrants, they're all with us and all around us in every aspect of our life now, including the workplace. And that's the nature of an increasingly diverse and really beautiful world in which we live. Um, And so having that sustainable path to relevancy is not only the right thing to do, it's a path that will lead to innovation. It will lead to success for those organizations that really embrace it. And I would say, you know, we all know that um, the Census Bureau has been pointing to an increasingly diverse population in the United States for years now. And the Census Bureau now estimates that in 2020 alone, international migration will add one person to the U.S. population every 34 seconds. So our world is growing, and with it, our opportunity to build a really valuable and diverse set of relationships, both at work and in our personal lives and in our families. So what are some examples of organizations that have done a really good job embracing positive and impactful cultural competency? Yeah, the question
2: about which companies or organizations are doing a good job, you know, representing the idea of cultural competence, I think, is a really good one. I, I would start by saying that every single organization I work with or has observed uh, have observed is on their own journey uh, relative to cultural competence and diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Which is kind of how we talk about the the, the wraparound of all of this work. Um, I would say that, you know, Procter & Gamble, I think, has been on a really fascinating journey over the last several years. Um, and it's an organization that I really respect um, and look up to for a couple of reasons. One, and this is really what I work with a lot of um, CEOs on, their CEO is committed in word and deed, you know, to this work. They, of course, have the largest, you know, consumer packaged goods um company in the world. And so the need to develop that cultural competence and to nurture it, you know, on the on behalf of everyone who works for them um, is critical because their employees are all over the world. So they have those points of view represented all over the world. They're doing a lot of work right now with with programs and even, you know, objectives and KPIs, et cetera that essentially say to all of their leaders, this is who we wanna be as an organization and as an influencer on the globe. Um, this is how we behave as, as P&G leaders. This is what we expect of our leadership. Um, and this is the kind of culture that we want to create and sustain collectively. So there's a commitment there from the very top of the organization. There's clarity around what success looks like to them. Um, and there are expectations and, and accountability, right, put in place in terms of people kind of living up to those ideals. And so that's really what it requires. There's certainly, you know, a lot of tactics that many companies are attaching to, um, strategies that they're building inside, right, of their change management systems. Um, and those might be different for different companies, depending on what their unique challenges are. But this is really about better understanding, you know, what great looks like, um, committing, right, to, the, to a journey that gets you there, um, and holding people accountable along the way. And so Procter & Gamble is a great example. I would also say that Target has done some really phenomenal work here and, and a lot of the work for Target can be seen, same with P&G, can be seen inside the organization, but can also be seen outside of the organization in marketing in products in retail strategies so those are probably two companies that i stay really connected to in terms of the work they're doing because i find them um to be inspirational models i would also like to say that to me being an inspirational model in this space is not 100% about outcomes quite yet because everybody's trying to get to this idea of a great outcome. I also find inspiration in the companies that are acknowledging, you know, very honestly where they're where they've fallen short, who are asking for the right help, you know, from the right resources at the right time, who are opening themselves up to the learning journey, who are including their employees right and their stakeholders in the process of defining a more preferred future um and who are making some investments you know very real and present investments in becoming the kind of company they say they want to be to me that process and the humility required right the 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 necessary pause it it means you have to take because sometimes doing this well and doing it right takes more time it's not as fast as it is to just do things the way you've always done it So those things, in my mind, are courageous steps forward, right? They're bold choices that these leaders are making intentionally um, in order to evolve, you know, who they are and how they show up.
1: I love what you said around the authenticity. And it almost, in my mind, sparks this feeling of vulnerability from a leader around just really needing to sort of. Go deep within where the gaps are and expose that there is learning to do that idea of really digging into learning. And, you know, and the, the ad old saying that just says, you know, we, we get what we measure. So how Tara, then when we think about this idea of growing cultural competence within leadership and really sort of, um, Creating um, a competency there inside of a senior leadership team or an organization, even that would go deep. Um, how can you help us understand really what that cultural competence sort of measurement looks like in practice? How do we begin to measure what that competence looks like?
2: Yeah, measuring cultural competence um, is a much bigger question than it sounds like because what you really have to ask is, um, what are we trying to achieve organizationally? Right. And then once you, I think, crystallize um, a- again, what you're what great looks like to you, what you're trying to achieve, what your objectives are. I think then there's a conversation around what do we need to do to get there? And then how will we know we're getting there? What will the success signals be? So some of this work has really hard measures, and, and other times there are soft measures, which is why I talk about success signals. You know, and one analogy I like to share here in terms of how will we know we're getting it right is inside cultures and organizations, your employees are really the ones who tell you whether you are an inclusive organization, who tell you whether your cultural competence is sufficient, right, or extraordinary. It's kind of like any relationship. And this is the way the relationship to me is the ultimate analogy, the personal relationship. You know, just like I can't tell you that I'm the best mother in the world. My children have to tell you that. I can tell you that I want to be, that I strive to be, which I don't. That's a lot of pressure. But I can tell you that I want to be a great mother. I can say I I try to be. I can say these are the ways that I try to be. But ultimately, the judge of whether or not I am a good parent is my children. And so when I think about organizations, the judges of whether or not we have an inclusive company, the judges of whether or not, you know, we demonstrate and live cultural competence at a satisfactory level, would be the people who work for us and with us every day. So, you know, there can be things like clearly engagement surveys, pulse surveys, focus groups, um, ways to kind of measure, you know, engagement or fulfillment you know, or other things inside the organizations that give us a sense of, again, whether we're living up to the ideals. And one of the frames that I talk about a lot is just these three layers of culture. So you have the claim, the policy, and the norm. The claim is really what an organization says about itself, right? This is who we are. This is what we believe. This is how we show up. Most organizations will then put policies in place to reinforce those claims, right? Here are the rules that we're saying we're going to abide by or the policies or the practices that we actually enable to prove that we are who we say we are. But ultimately, it's the level of the norm, the behaviors, you know, that we we live by day in and day out, the choices we make or don't, the people we promote or don't, right, the leadership attributes we celebrate versus those we tolerate. It is our norms, our day-to-day activity, right, interaction, again, choices that really dictate our culture. Um, and only the employees can say, right, whether our norms match our claims. And, and in many companies, they don't. Um, the ones who are really intent on getting it right have sought to better understand what their norms say about who they are and to bridge that gap. That's
0: a great way of thinking about it, Tara, is you know the claim that you're making, the policies and procedures that you're enacting, and then the norms that are um, embraced throughout the organization. It's a great way of thinking of it. And as we've talked about, cultural competence is multi-layered and multifaceted. And I would say that this is one of the most critical, I think, areas of expertise that we all need to embrace because without it, our opportunity to build relationships. Is simply impossible um, instead we will simply coexist with people that we don't really understand and that creates a higher risk for misunderstandings for hurt feelings for bias whether that's intended or not and things that can all be avoided so um, as a leader how do you recommend that we begin to identify the cultural competency gaps Within our organizations, how can we identify those gaps and how can we address those gaps in a way that doesn't shame people or doesn't create a sense of them versus us? Is there a way to objectively assess the cultural competence, identify the gaps and then begin to address those gaps?
2: Yeah. So this is a really good question. And, you know, interestingly, when I started my company, TJF career modeling a few years ago, I came up with the tagline, an inspired purpose, a practical approach. And the reason why is to me, the purpose behind the work is for every leader and every company to be able to, you know, reach their own professional high ground. And I think we all as individuals have a high ground, organizations have a high ground too. But the practical approach piece, which was as important to me, says You know what? There are a lot of theories around leadership and there are a lot of big ideas. But at the end of the day, we need to the point you raised to be able to surgically identify and understand where we're winning, where we're losing and figure out how to make, right? Very intentional shifts, um, in our behaviors and in our, our decision making processes so that we can become, you know, the very best version of ourselves so we can reach our professional high ground. So one of the bodies of work that I do um, with my clients is something that um, I call in some cases the talent journey. And so what it does is it brings people together through different lenses and it actually asks them to identify, you know, the key inflection points in an employee's work experience. Now, the, the analogy I like to use here, which honestly, continues to inspire me is when I was at Hallmark, um, you know, we, we would go through clearly I was in product development, right? Lots of insight development, you know, phases, if we were talking about marketing or the brand or just how to better engage the consumer. And one of the bodies we work of work we did was around these, um, life stages. So these key inflection points in a person's life where the brand or the product might be most useful and meaningful. And it's natural for a company to say, it's most important that we address our issues at the points where we spend the most money or make the most money, right? So like recruiting, as an example, it's most important for us to attack that and understand what's going on there and fix it. But what we learned in the work at at Hallmark was that it wasn't necessarily about the big drive periods so or the points during which we made the most money. It was, it was as much about and sometimes even more so those just small moments of meaning that really, um, heightened our need for relationship and connectedness. Right. And when the emotions were most high, you know, for example, when you get married or when you're sick, right. So the analogy here in workplaces is to say, what are those key moments in someone's employment journey where the emotions are most high and the need for connectedness and support is deepest? If we can identify what those are and then bring people together with diverse lenses to essentially assess each of those points in time and then work together to identify potential solutions people can start to shift their systems, right? Because they'll better understand where the bias is hiding and where it's going to matter most. So that's kind of a body of work I'm deeply engaged in right now is getting a better understanding of what those universal moments are. I have hypotheses around it, um, but doing a body of research around that, better understanding what those moments of truth are, um, and then really trying to help people uncover them Uncover the issues associated with each of those moments um, and and come up with real solutions. So how do we, you know, how do we kind of know what our cultural competence is? Again, bringing together diverse points of view to tell you <laughs> whether it's good or bad and where it's good or bad. Because where in the system um, these issues exist really matters. They never exist wholesale. They're never everywhere, they're in pockets, right? They're in places of the system and they're hiding. And this is really about shining a light on them, rooting them out and dealing with them for what they are. So how do we measure that? You know, We can measure it sometimes through leadership effectiveness surveys, understanding um, whether our leaders are leading inclusively and what the employees actually say about that. We can measure it by retention. Right. When our cultural competence is low and people feel excluded and that they don't have equal opportunity to thrive, et cetera. They leave the organization in usually three years or less. So understanding kind of attrition, you know, and and what that looks like is really important. Things like net promoter score are really important because somebody might stay at a company, but I might stay for a lot of reasons. Maybe I just really need to feed my family. But if you ask me, would you recommend that your family member or best friend come work here, I may have a very different answer. So there are different ways, I think, to measure um, the level of competence in an organization you know, or inclusivity uh, to see where you are now and, and more important to kind of measure as you start to make changes to see if you're able to actually evolve or grow from that point.
1: What's sort of sticking with me about how you're explaining this is that it's not necessarily a skill that you sort of check the box and I've mastered it. It's more, if I'm getting this right, as a commitment, it's a journey, it's a, it's a, an evolution of really understanding what is and how it could be better. And then really making that level of commitment every single day throughout all areas of you know, your team's sort of journey, as you say, or those milestones, you know, through their employment process. Um, and it's a relationship. And so for our listeners today, I'm wondering if you can offer just some practical advice, just a few um, ways to kind of get started in terms of easy things that they can do to sort of heighten their awareness and improve, you know, their cultural competencies.
2: Yeah, so I love that you brought up that this is really about relationship because I always tell people, you know what? We need to finish where we start. At the end of the day, this is about relationship and any relationship is built and is strengthened by a series of pleasant interactions over time. That is what a relationship is a series of pleasant interactions over time. And we all know when we think about any relationship we have, That if we have three pleasant interactions, right, and then we have one really, really terrible one, we're sometimes starting from ground zero or maybe even at a deficit. So organizations need to think about their relationship with their employees through that lens. It is a relationship. And anytime I want to build and develop a meaningful relationship, there are several things I have to do. One, I have to be an active listener so that I understand what even matters to you you know, what your beliefs and values are and, and how, um, what you want out of this relationship, I need to be able to express that to you in return. We need to be able to identify whether or not we are aligned, whether a relationship between the two of us has any longevity at all. As we go, we need to stay attuned to each other, right? And continue to listen and pay attention so that we can love each other. And I use that in the agape sense, so that we can love each other in a way that's meaningful to the person on the other side, and that we're not just treating each other and loving each other according to what we deem important. This is the nature of any relationship, and it is no different inside of corporations. So what I would say to people inside organizations who want to know where to start, the first thing is to learn to actively listen. We we have just started over the last few months to make space for difficult meaning conversation, meaningful conversations about things like race, for example. The reason it matters that we have created space for other people to share their lived experiences and for us to listen and learn about their lived experiences is that, for instance, You know, for black people in this country, we're taught early on to not talk about race at work, the way we're taught to not talk about politics or not talk about religion. And we're taught that so that people don't think we're playing the race card or we're playing the victim, which, by the way, is not a fun game. So now here we are, right? If we really want to build relationship, we need to create the space to listen and to learn and to acknowledge and reflect back to someone. I heard you. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing that we really need to do, which I mentioned earlier, is do the hard work of identifying those moments in time that matter, bringing diverse groups of people together to, to kind of shine a light on where the issues are, and then working together in diverse groups to solve for those problems. The third thing we need to do is really get connected. So when we talk about relationships, you know, I I read a stat that white people in America, for example, have 91 times as many white friends as they do black friends outside of work. Is it any wonder, right, that we are uh, ill-equipped to build bridges across difference? We don't do it you know, in our personal lives. We just don't, we we kind of isolate and we stay in our bubbles. And so we haven't developed this muscle and the muscle is a relationship muscle. People people ask me, well, how do we do it with people who are different versus people who aren't? Everybody's different. Every single person is an individual in the way that you have developed a relationship with anyone is the way you develop a relationship with anyone so that's the third thing you know i'd say the fourth um a fourth thing that we really need to do is start to kind of unlock opportunity for people you know to to mitigate and intervene when bias shows up so that the intervention skill is a really important one because bias is like a bullet train it will always go where it has always gone and it will always pick up the same people. Like it It doesn't just decide on a random Tuesday to stop at a new place and to pick up new folks. It'll do what it's always done. And, and bias and speed go hand in hand. So for people who want to interrupt those systems, they have to pause. They have to slow things down. They have to ask better questions. They have to ask people to be specific, right? And to make sure that feedback they're giving other people is relevant and specific, you know, and and timely. So these are some of the things that leaders, I think, need to do. Some of the behaviors they need to begin to practice and embrace. Um, and all of it is uncomfortable because all of it is different. And I think the sooner we can accept that. Um, the the more e- the easier it will be to make the kind of progress you know that we need to make.
0: Wow, such great advice, Tara. Seriously, thank you so much. What is the most powerful bit of advice you've received and applied to your career?
2: Well, sadly, I'm going to have to give you two. So forgive me, um, because there are really two pieces that have shaped, I believe, the way I lead forward. One of them um, was a leader. Her name's Terry Ann Drake, and she was uh, the senior vice President of Creative when I was at Hallmark. And she always used to say, "Hold your truths lightly." And you know, that particular piece of advice was relevant not only inside the business environment, right? Where we believe we know what the problem is, or we believe we know the right thing to do, but it's also relevant in our relationships, outside of work. So hold your truths lightly. If we could do that, then we can make space for other people's truths, right? And potentially emerge with a more um, well-rounded, you know, truth that allows us to find some common ground. The other piece of advice um, was from Mike Perry, who now actually happens to be um, the CEO of Hallmark. And he and I worked together many years ago. And he always used to say, well, what would have to be true? And the reason I love that question is I think whenever you're talking about innovation or doing something really different or breaking some China, right, people will always come quickly and say, well, we can't do that, that because of this, or we've tried that before, or that's not going to work. And he would always say, what would have to be true? And I love that because it's a possibility-minded question. So those are the two pieces of advice that I think have probably shaped me the
0: most. And I'm holding on to both of those. That is incredible insight. And they're both really thought-provoking. So thank you, not only for ending us with not just one piece of advice, but actually two, but providing such unique expertise and experience and really sharing with us in such a transparent, honest way, um, not only your experience, but your understanding of how we're all on a journey of increasing our level of sensitivity and cultural confidence. So Tara, thank you. On behalf of all of our listeners and Christina and I, we both are so grateful. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much again for inviting me and glad to be here with you.
0: Thank you for joining Leadership Global, a podcast for and about unstoppable women stepping into courage, claiming their power and embracing bold leadership. Join us each week as we talk to a collection of inspirational women changing the world and tackling the most pressing issues we're facing today as women and as leaders. See you next week.